the thought that just crossed my mind, and maybe it crossed your mind, was this. What will I be doing if Christ comes back in my lifetime? What posture, what activity, what frame of mind will I be in when he comes back? This has nothing to do with my message, but I think it's very eternal in nature. I mean, it's, it's a sobering thought when you think about it, especially when we choose to sin and choose to live for ourselves. Christ is coming back. What will I be doing? Will I be found faithful? We continue in our, our series through the book of First Peter. I invite you to turn to your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to First Peter chapter 3. While you're doing that, I also want to acknowledge the fact that we are a church that believes in miracles, even a miracle to be done by 1130. <laughs> this ought to be interesting. <laughs> if I speak faster, I'll repeat myself afterwards. Um, and by the way, Diana, it is really good to have you here. I love the long history, even though the Lord takes his people around. I love the fact that we can, the partnership still remains. And I love the fact that we as a church get to respond and help brothers and sisters in Christ and those who are yet to be brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Because guess what? The gospel goes forward. The gospel is literally going forward. What the enemy intends for evil, God uses for good. Do we love the evil? No, but God is using it for good. And guess what? Churches are literally filling up with people. And I love the the local version, the Poland version of Billy Graham. He's just like, no one's coming through without them hearing the gospel. And there's nothing like suffering to make people more receptive and more able listeners than when everything gets swept up from underneath us. And so I can't wait to see the fruit that is born because of what the enemy seeks to do. And so we pray to that end, right, church family? We pray that God would be glorified. He will be glorified. May we be on that side. May we pray to that very end. You should be in First Peter right now. Um, just to give you a quick overview, if you're new with us, you're probably wondering where we come from so far. I want to just read two verses for us in First Peter 2, starting in verses 11 and 12. These are kind of our jump-off verses that really kind of take us all the way through the middle part of chapter 4. Peter says this in verses 11 and 12, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This, this phrase, keep your conduct among the Gentiles or the unbelievers honorable, is really, Paul, excuse me, Peter goes into multiple examples of what that looks like. And without rehashing last week's sermon for us, because we obviously don't have time for that, we need to understand that we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, are sojourners, we're exiles, we're pilgrims in this world. In other words, we, are, we, we belong to another kingdom as citizens of another kingdom whose kingdom has a different ruler whose value system and priorities are radically different than the world in which we reside in at this time. 
It doesn't mean that there's not some crossover, but the fact is we are a peculiar people, saved to a different standard, a different worldview, a different perspective. And of course, from that, Peter gives us examples. Because you are believers, because you are sojourners, because we ought to live our lives, even in the context of suffering, in a way that's excellent or honorable, this is how you do it. And last week, you might recall very briefly that Peter gives two primary examples, and we'll continue with our third example this morning, but he says, what it looks like to live an honorable life or an excellent life among, among unbelievers is to be the best citizens ever, to be subject or to be obedient to the governing authorities over you, even if they're ungodly. He goes on to give a second example that also means that you ought to be the best employee ever, even if your employer is unjust or unfair. Again, I know this is kind of like a difficult for Westerners to adopt or accept or even to gulp down because we are all about our fairness. We're all about our rights. We're all about what makes us happy and makes our lives more comfortable. And Peter says, hey, by the way, you don't belong to this world. We have a different value system. We have a different way of life. We go about life differently because we serve one who is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. It doesn't mean that we're absent in this life. It doesn't mean that we dismiss this life. It doesn't mean that we're not unengaged in this life. In fact, it's because we live for a different kingdom. It's because we live for a different ruler. Therefore, we are most engaged. We are most impactful. We actually draw focus to Christ through our lives, and people take notice. Some people, it's a stench, and some people, it's an aroma, a fragrance. For some people, it means... Eternal life, in fact. And so Peter continues on the same, the same theme. What does it look like to live a life that is honorable or excellent among non-believers? And he now goes into the context of marriage. Look at with me in chapter 3, starting in verse 1, all the way through verse 7. Peter says this, Likewise, Again, much like governing authorities, much like in the context of your employee-employer relationship, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by, your, by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as, they, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening." Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. There's a couple of uh, acknowledgments I want to just kind of address up front, because a passage such as this, no doubt, stirs the water a little bit. I highly doubt all of us agree in here, right? 
I want you to know that, I, I, that, that the marriage, really the context of marriage, or even marriage expectations in Western culture are increasingly more polarized than God's design of marriage. Especially as Westerns, we love to redefine things that suit our best interest as we define our best interest. And so God's design of marriage and the roles that he's played out in marriage, obviously uh, they become increasingly more polarized. I know that God's complementary design between a husband and a wife has been misunderstood by many and wrongfully implemented by many more. I know that abuse within marriages is more common than we'd like to admit, even in some of your marriages right now. I also know that not all abuse justifies divorce. After all, who is not guilty of abuse? I know that as a guy who preaching to women and how they should relate to their difficult husbands might be viewed as biased. Trust me, I don't approach this haphazardly. I know that I will not be able to, re- to uh, resolve every marital situation in our extremely short time here this morning, but regardless of what thoughts come to your mind and, and, or what emotions that this subject may trigger for you, especially if you're coming from a very difficult situation, our need still remains. Our need still remains, and that is to understand God's design of marriage, and we need to conform to our God-ordained roles in marriage as outlined in Scripture. A couple of things I want to kind of highlight from our passage here also before we jump in and draw focus as well as application. First of all, just because Peter helps wives understand how to live with an unbelieving husband, and by the way, sometimes the, the roles can be reversed here too, but Peter specifically calls out wives and how to relate to their unbelieving husband that does not justify you marrying an unbelieving spouse. You see, the context in which Peter's writing here are two people that were not believers, and then the wife actually becomes a believer, and then what should she do from then? Because after all, her allegiances have changed. Her loyalty is now to Christ first and foremost. And then if the opposite was true, and normally if a, if a husband came to a certain faith or adopted a certain religion, the wife and the family followed. But if the opposite was true, it created quite a bit of conflict. Because again, the husband may not be on board with this. So what is she to do? How is she to navigate these difficult circumstances with an unbelieving husband who could abuse her and make life very difficult for her, maybe even divorce her. I also want to say very quickly, just because Peter writes six verses to women and only one verse to a man does not mean he's a misogynist. And it doesn't mean that women are difficult to kind of get on the idea, so therefore they need a few more verses of explanation. That's not the point here. How many other um, explanations do I need to give before we jump into the text? (laughs) Maybe we should just jump into the text here. The question I want to pose for us, for both husbands and wives, is this. In this case, what godly behavior is expected of a Christian wife toward her unbelieving husband? Now, this doesn't mean you, this doesn't preclude the fact that Wives should not act like this with believing husbands, 
but the context is an unbelieving husband. So what is the godly behavior expected of a Christian wife toward an unbelieving husband? And Peter gives us four kind of broad descriptions here. There are actually more, but four broad descriptions I'm going to highlight here. He says, first of all, wives, be subject to your husbands. The word there is submission. Yes, I said it. And I did not curse when I said it. I think uh, this word for submission has been highly misunderstood, and I know submission oftentimes lands on our ears, much like that baby eating avocado for the first time. We want nothing to do with it. How dare you bring that up? Well, it is in Scripture all throughout, as we will see, and uh, you can take that picture off. That'll be way distracting. But Peter calls wives, first of all, what a godly wife looks like, what it looks like to have godly conduct that is excellent among unbelievers is that a wife is submissive to her husband. This is God's design for marriage, this marriage union, this marriage context in which a wife would be come under the authority or the leadership of her husband. But let me just tell you really quickly, there's a difference between submission as oftentimes comes to our ears or as oftentimes implemented in our society versus biblical submission. So let me tell you what biblical submission is not very quickly, and then we'll define what it is. Biblical submission does not mean at all any moral, intellectual, or spiritual inferiority. It doesn't mean that a woman has less value or is second class or has less to offer, has, is less important by any means whatsoever. In fact, Peter even says in verse 7, wives are joint heirs, not kind of co-joint heirs, not 60-40, joint heirs of the grace of life. So when we think of biblical submission, we must remove uh, identity and worth and value. That has nothing to do with it. You still are, men and women are both created in the image of God, co-heirs of the grace of God. We have equal worth and value and status in the sight of God. And then there's a role that we are each to fulfill. And God calls in the context of marriage, women or wives to be submissive to their husbands. What does biblical submission mean? Let me uh, refer to it in this way. Get past that picture. Biblical submission is an attitude that willingly yields to another authority, authority or leadership of another person. Specifically, the context of marriage is the authority of her husband. So biblical submission is an attitude that willingly yields to the authority or leadership of another person. Now, we must understand that submission is actually a normal part of societal fabric. It is built into the fabric of a society that functions and is healthy. There must be a constant state of submission. We are all submitting in some way, shape, form, or fashion in life. If, no, if there was no submission whatsoever, that is the definition of anarchy, which by definition also leads to total chaos. And you can't have a functioning society 
if there is no submission, if there's not clear roles clearly spelled out. That's why Peter's going into it. Hey, you know what this looks like? It means that uh, we, you know, there's the governing authorities and there's people that must submit to those governing authorities. There's employers and there's the employee status. In the, the context of marriage, there's husbands and there's wives. Peter, uh, Paul will go into some other examples of what that looks like in Ephesians 5. Think of biblical submission like this. Have you ever seen somebody uh, like swing dance or anything like that? My wife and I had swing dancing at our wedding, right? I know, we had a full band and everything. But my wife and I aren't great swing dancers, (laughs) right? I grew up, I actually didn't grow up, I did swing dancing a lot in college and stuff, but... Um, there's a difference, there's, there's a way swing dancing works, or any kind of dancing works. There's a leader, and there's a follower. If you have two leaders, it doesn't work. If you have two followers, it doesn't work. Even if you have a leader and follower, it may not work. But the best possible chances of it working are when they come together. And that's how life works in general. There's a leader and there's a follower. There's, a, a, there's submission that happens all throughout the fabric of society and the context of marriage is no exemption. Biblical submission is an attitude that willingly yields to the authority or the leadership of another. Let's highlight three little points there. First of all, attitude. Attitude is a crucial part of biblical submission because a wife who is begrudgingly submissive to her husband then that attitude only could probably better defined as a forced compliance. It's not a willingness. It's like, I must, I have to do it. But what God calls wives to do is to willingly submit. That brings us to our next qualification. It's a willing submission. It's voluntary. It's a voluntary selflessness. It is a willing submission that is ultimately motivated out of submission or a desire to please God. We'll talk about that more in just a second. So it is both an attitude that is willing to submit to the authority of another person. Now, the purpose of biblical authority, and I define it by biblical because we can hear the word authority and that can have all kinds, it can resonate in all kinds of ways in our ears, right? But biblical authority is always for the purpose of protection and blessing, Biblical authority is for protection and blessing, not to domineer and not to control. So authority or leadership is an essential part to every functioning and healthy marriage. However, this all changed back in Genesis chapter 3, right? God created everything and everything was good, everything was perfect. There was no sin in the world. Everything as it was intended to be as God designed it to be. And in Genesis chapter three, we see that both Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God. And there's consequences from our rebellion. There's consequences from sin. One of those consequences, due to the corrupting nature of sin, God says this in verse 16 of Genesis three, you, referring to Eve, the woman, will desire to control your husband and he will rule over you. In other words, all of a sudden, God's perfect design is negatively sabotaged by the corrupting nature of sin. And so, although God's design of marriage is perfect, and it still continues to be, we struggle with it because of our fallen nature. 
And there just seems to be this kind of, not for everybody, mind you, but there seems to be this kind of natural desire for women to usurp the authority or not at least be under someone else's authority and for the guy oftentimes to be passive and not assume his leadership or headship within the context of marriage. But regardless of how this all transpired, even if a husband is not a believer, even if a husband is not worthy of someone to be under his authority, Peter calls Christian wives to submit to their husbands. So why would they do that? This brings us to our motivation. The motivation behind a wife's submission to her husband's authority is ultimately Jesus Christ. She cannot do it for any other reason or she'll have reason to not want to do it any longer. But wives are to submit to their husbands because of their submission to Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The motivation behind fulfilling God's exhortation on your life isn't because your husband is always worthy of it. Please, keep your comments to a minimum. It's not because your husband somehow is like this super chivalrous man who just kind of, you just can't wait to kind of throw yourself at him. No, it's not any of those reasons you submit to your husband because that's what God has called you to do. Because you desire to please God first and foremost. In fact, there's an inseparable correlation between a wife's submission to her husband and her submission to Jesus Christ. Point being, if you're saying, there's no way I'm going to submit to my husband, then dare I say, do you have any intent to submit to Christ and what he's called you to do? Aaron, it's not fair, I know. We live in a world of a lot of unfairness. And as Christians, we live differently because we have a different ruler, a different kingdom with a different set of values. Now, there's a few clarifications I want to highlight under this whole topic of submission, and that is this. A wife is not called to be submissive to all men, only her husband. Sometimes people get this wrong. But a wife is only called to be submissive to her husband. Secondly, a husband, please be aware, husbands, listen to me, a husband is not called by God to ensure the submission of your wife. And some of you, and I mean this in seriousness, some of you are guilty of that. But you are never called in Scripture to enforce the submission of your wife to you. That's between her and God, and she's accountable to God for her obedience. Thirdly, we need to understand that submission is not equally reciprocal. And by that, what I'm talking about is when Paul talks about in Ephesians 5.21 that we are called to, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, we need to understand that what he commands us in context. Yes, we're all submitting in some way, shape, or form. We're all called to submit to the lordship of Christ. There's all kinds of submission that is going on that we all must employ in and through our lives. But Paul goes on to give examples of what he means when we submit to one another 
out of reverence for Christ. He goes on to wives submitting to their husbands, servants submitting to masters, children submitting to parents, and of course, we're all called to submit to the lordship of Christ. But there's never, the, the opposite is not true. In other words, husbands are never called to submit to their wives in Scripture, and par- just like parents are never called to submit to their children in Scripture. Can you imagine that? Point is that God's design of marriage is that a wife be submissive to the authority or to the, to the leadership of her husband, even if they're unbelievers. And by doing so, not only does the wife please the Lord by her ultimate submission to God, but Peter says that a wife's unbelieving husband has the best possible chance of coming into saving faith with Jesus Christ through her conduct. In other words, what motivates a woman, what motivates a wife to do, to live in this way, even if it seems completely unfair, even if it seems to smack, you know, just basically challenge all the rights and all the easiness of life, he says, live in this way because guess what? God may save your husband through your faithful conduct. And is that even more important and more valuable than fighting for your rights? in the context of marriage. I'm not saying lay down and be abused. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not saying keep quiet. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. In so doing, they have the best possible chance of coming to faith in Christ. They may be one, Peter says in verse one. They may be one without a word of, by the conduct of your wives when they see a respectful and pure conduct. There's two more descriptions here. We have the purity of the wife and we have the respectfulness of the wife. This purity refers to being a chaste or holy or, or living a life that is free from immorality. In other words, a wife is, is untainted by things that we might determine or call sin. So she lives in her wife in a pure way. She also lives with her husband in a very respectful manner. And ultimately, she respects her husband because she respects God. She has a a, a sobering and humbling reverence for God. We also see that she's called to live uh, uh, with an inward beauty that is prioritized over outward beauty. Listen to verses three and four. Paul, Peter says this, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. By the way, that's all contextual. But let the adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. What Peter's doing here, he's elevating the, the, the importance of an internal beauty called character. He's not against women or wives looking beautiful. He's not against, you know, no, you shouldn't braid your hair. No, that's not. That's all contextual. What, he is, what he's trying to elevate is that we shouldn't be so focused on our outward appearance that we give no regard or spend no time fostering an inward beauty called character, which, as he says, in the sight of God is most precious. After all, outward beauty fades over time, Right? but inward beauty grows stronger over time. What, is, what does God say to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16? He says, people judge by outward appearances, but God looks at the heart. 
And so this inner beauty that Peter alludes to, this character that he describes, is, he describes it in a, as a gentle and quiet spirit. Gentleness is actually another version of meekness, which as we've, under, as we've defined meekness before, meekness is strength under control. Strength under control. In other words, you can be a pretty powerful woman, but your strength is under control. And quiet does not mean mute. It just means non-combative. Imagine if our conversations were non-combative. It doesn't mean that a wife cannot and should not speak truthfully, even persuasively to her husband, but in doing so, she doesn't demand her own way. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13, 5? Love does not insist on its own way. How is a woman able to do this, to live like this? Why would they even want to do this, other than the fact that God clearly lays it out in Scripture? I believe, as Peter says in verse 23 of chapter 2, a woman's able to live like this because she entrusts herself to her heavenly Father. Once again, she serves her husband in this way, not because her husband is worthy, not because he earns it all the time, not because of any other reason other than the fact she's seeking to please God first and foremost. And out of her desperate desire to seek and please God first and foremost, she lives with her husband in this way, submitting to his headship, living a, being gentle and quiet, not mute, but the manner in which she is speaking. Now we have one verse for the guys. But it's loaded and actually way more sobering. What godly behavior is expected of, Christian, of a Christian husband towards his wife? Listen to what Peter says. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. To, to live with your wife in an understanding way means to be considerate of your wife in a holistic way. In other words, you're being considerate of her emotional, her physical, and her spiritual needs. But you're not just becoming aware of those needs on a holistic level. You are doing whatever it takes to meet those needs. Give you one such example. It's hard not to refer to your own marriage in a a subject such as this. But, uh, you know, as you well know, I don't need to convince you. When you first got married, everything is utter bliss, right? And then years go on, and it's even more blissful, right? (laughs) Or, yeah, <laughs> just kidding. No, but think, guess what? The rubber meets the road. The mirrors come out. You start seeing a reflection of your own heart. The good, bad, and the ugly all come out eventually, right? That's why marriage is the most refining context ever. But one of those things that you kind of discover as you are married for a while is you kind of go, man, she does things differently than I do, you know? Just the way she goes about things, you know? And so one of, you know, the differences that Abby and I have, and I know many of you probably have the same kind of differences, is that I'm an internal processor. My wife is an external processor. What that means is, not to 
I think you probably know what I mean, but I'm just going to give you an explanation anyways. What that means is I process everything with my lips shut. Sometimes take a walk. I'm just mulling over. Abby can tell when I'm processing. I'm having this dialogue and conversation in my mind, but I'm not saying anything, and usually I'm just looking off into oblivion, and, uh, and things are going on. Well, my wife needs to kind of process out. It took me a while to get used to that because I'd be like, you really think that? She's like, I don't know. I'm just talking right now. I don't know what I think right now. I'm like, oh, because... I've pretty much, whatever I kind of, whatever spills out of my lips has already been processed, filtered, and at least at this point, this is pretty much what I think to be true. Um, so how do I live with my wife in an understanding way and being considerate of her needs? This is how the Lord has grown me. Guess what I do? I invite her into my process. Oh, man. It was, it was brutal at first. Because I had to open up with things because I'm like, I don't want to say anything that I haven't actually filtered through, and, I, and I'm, I'm always my own worst enemy, and I'm, I'm a devil's advocate in my own mind going, is this right? Is this right? I'm not sure. And I, I challenge myself, and I'll be like, I'm kind of thinking this, and I'm like, but my mind might change on it. Is it okay to say this out loud? Is anybody else going to hear this? Um, which is another conversation for another time, by the way. When you have conversations with your spouse, they ought to stay with your spouse. But the way the Lord has grown me to be considerate of my wife is to invite her into the process because it speaks love to her. And it was difficult for me, but I've actually gotten used to it. And we're still growing in it, right? Yeah. Live with your wife in an understanding way. This also means that the responsibility is on the husband to initiate. To live with your wife in an understanding way means that it, because men have the role as divinely given by God to be the head or to be the leader of the home, it is on you, husbands, to take the initiation on many levels. What, I, what this kind of means in the most practical ways is this. If there is a drift in your marriage, it is on you, husbands, to step up and make a change. This doesn't mean that women can't say something and do something either. I'm not saying that. It doesn't mean that they can't even initiate that. But it is the responsibility of the husband to take the initiation to ensure the health and the well-being of your marriage. One of the ways my wife and I did this, especially after we had the triplets, uh, because for the, about five months after having the triplets, I'd come home and there's like six cars in front of our house every day. Guess how much FaceTime I had with my wife? Pretty much nil. And over, you know, you get month and month and week and week after, over time, you, it just compounds going like, wow, my wife and I have not connected in a long time. So about five months into our triplet journey, we said, time out. We need to make a change. And so I initiated this idea that we've continued to this day that has been extremely beneficial for us, and so take it for what it's worth. But we do these day dates once a month. We don't do it at night because we're exhausted, and our, mentally we're just checked out. So the nighttime doesn't work. The morning time is crazy and chaotic, and it starts way too early. And so we have these day dates, and one of the people, and I'm just going to just do a shout out and praise and a thank you, we have, well, my sister-in-law here who's been incredible, but we also have this group of ladies, we call them the widows, 
they bring a team. They fill our little driveway up. They bring a team, and they come over and say, okay, go. And Abby and I get to just go away for about five, six, seven hours at a time, sometimes longer, even though it's unplanned. And the point of this day date is not to multitask. It's not to go through the to-do list. It is just to have FaceTime going, how are we doing? What has the Lord been teaching you and me? What are the things that we can celebrate and give thanks for? What are the things that we need to grow on and work on? That's the opportunity or the context in which, hey, I've noticed this pattern. Can we talk about this? And, I don't, and we both go in, not defensively, but ready to receive because that is the place in which we want to do real business with each other and with the Lord. I can't tell you, church family, it has been a life changer for our marriage. Not because it was on the rocks before that, but because it's just been incredibly encouraging. It bonds us together in ways that, uh, that I, no other activity or pursuit ever did. So I just want to throw an encouragement out to you. Take a day, and I know, especially if, you have, if you're a family of young kids, you're like, man, it's hard to get babysitters. Trust me, the month prior, we're already planning our date. You always get out of something what you put into it, right? The month prior, we're already putting our date on the calendar going, we're leaving this day. We're just gone for the middle part of the day. We come back to do the whole dinner uh, bedtime routine, and we just get away, and we just take time with one another, with the Lord and prayer. It has been foundational to our marriage. I want to challenge you or encourage you in the same way. Pick a day, and, on, and at the end of that day, at that date, Pick the day you're going to do it next month and already start planning to do whatever you got to do in order to make that day carved out. You will not regret it. And husbands, here's the challenge for you. Take the lead. Don't begrudgingly kind of go along with what your wife already planned out. She'll probably plan it out anyways. (laughs) Take the lead. Initiate. Your wife will love you for it. Live with your life in an understanding way. It also means to know your wife well. That's not just limited to knowing who she is and what she's like, but what I want to point out here is living with your wife in an understanding way means that you accept her for who she is. You accept her for who she is. How often are we trying to change our spouse? Somehow thinking that the world would be a better place if they were more like us. The fact is, God has brought you together, whether you acknowledge that or realize that at all. God has brought you together to complement one another. And even when you don't complement one another, it's the most refining and glorious context in which God has brought you together so that you might more reflect Him more clearly. So living with your wife in an understanding way means you accept her for who she is. After all, who does not want to be accepted for who they really are? Belonging is an intrinsic need that all human beings have in life. Wow. Let me just jump ahead here. Honor your wife. Honor your wife. Peter says that the wife is the weaker vessel. This doesn't mean at all that you have nothing to offer or anything like that. 
The weaker vessel just means that in general, women are usually physically weaker than men. That's not true for all cases, but in general. So treat her as such. Treat her well. That's actually a deeper understanding of what it means to honor her. It means to treat her well. Honoring your wife means to treat her well in public as well as in private. Paul says in Ephesians 5, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife actually loves himself. Let me just put it bluntly, men. Your wife should thrive because of your servant leadership. Your wife should thrive because of your servant leadership toward her. She should blossom and become the fullest version as God has intended her to become because of your leadership. Because there's a warning. And the warning is this. God's attentiveness toward you is dependent upon your attentiveness toward your wife. Think about that. If we do not fulfill our responsibilities as husbands, Peter says, your prayers will be hindered. Grudem said it well this way. He says, so concerned is God that Christian husbands live in an understanding way and loving way with their wives that he interrupts his relationship with them when they are not doing so. Divine blessing, MacArthur says, is cut off when a husband does not treat his wife in this manner. So there's a sobering warning for us husbands. These aren't optional considerations. These are divine mandates. But I guarantee you, they're not divine mandates mandates to make your life miserable and to make your marriage more complicated. They're actually to give you your life and to make your marriage thrive so that it might glorify God. So as we live in this world surrounded by many non-believers that are looking on, they're looking at your lives, and by the way, they are looking. They are watching. They are making conclusions. I wonder what conclusion they will make by watching your marriage. We live our lives in an excellent way by submitting to civil authorities, by submitting to employers, by submitting to husbands, by husbands leading and living with their wives in an understanding way. Isn't this not what Jesus modeled for us? When we think of the word submission, is not the word or the virtue of humility right off its tongue? What does Philippians 2 say? That Jesus is the, 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 the exemplary kind of example of, of humility, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality to God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He submitted to his Father. He willingly went to the cross. He wasn't kicking and screaming. He willingly went to the cross out of obedience to his Father, and who for the joy that was set before him knew what the cross would accomplish. So Jesus literally embodies submission. And we benefit as a result. In fact, we celebrate 
as a result. And so we have the opportunity as a church family to celebrate the ultimate act of submission that was accomplished through Jesus Christ. We give thanks for what Jesus did for us, what he accomplished on the cross. We eat the bread as a way of symbolically remembering what Christ has done for us. He gave his body. It was broken for you and for me so that we might have life. So we eat this bread as a way of saying thank you to Jesus. Let's eat together. In the same way, we drink this cup, which represents the blood of Jesus, which is poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of this world, he comes, he gives his life, and his blood covers us and sanctifies us. It purifies us. It makes us innocent. We descend free and clear before God, saying, I'm clean. I'm innocent. I'm accepted. Let us drink together with that understanding. Heavenly Father, we are so very grateful for your goodness to us. We're so grateful for your love for us. We're so grateful for your word because it is by the truth that we are set free. And Father, I know sometimes your word confronts us with things that are challenging to us and are very different than the world in which we live. And yet your standard has never changed. The world has changed and the values of this world have changed all the time, but your word has always remained true. So Father, by your spirit, empower us to live to that end. May we be men and women, husbands and fathers, and future husbands and future uh, wives and, and husbands that are seeking to live the standard that you have given to us, knowing full well that your design is best and your ways are perfect. Father, may the world take notice, not because we're drawing attention to ourselves, but may the world take notice of you and how incredibly amazing you are because we are faithful to what you've called us to do. May we reflect you most clearly in our obedience to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.